Welcome to Tales from the Campanile, a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on over 60 years of interviews to bring those stories to life. In the first season of this series, we offer six episodes exploring the transformation of women's role in politics from the fight for voting rights in the early 20th century to the Year of the Women in 1992, when the representation of women in Congress increased dramatically. This first season is narrated by Emmy Award-winning journalist, Belva Davis. Please join us for From the Outside In, Women in Politics. And so, my friends, it is with humility, determination, and boundless confidence in America's promise that I accept your nomination for President of the United States. On July 28, 2016, Hillary Rodham Clinton broke through one of the highest glass ceilings remaining in America's political system, becoming the first female presidential nominee of a major party in the United States. It's been a long road to that historic event in Philadelphia last July, a journey marked by exclusion, by setbacks, and by over a century of struggle for women to gain political equality in America. In this six-part series, From the Outside In, Women in Politics, we will explore that long road through the courageous women who forged it. We will hear these pathbreakers tell their stories in their own words, using the oral history recordings from the past 60 years housed at the Bancroft Library. From securing the universal right to vote, to gaining an equal voice in both the State House and the Halls of Congress, these women struggled against all odds to make America live up to its promise. And in the process, they fought to make a man's world their own, working from the outside in. We start with the very foundation of America's political system, the vote. At the turn of the 20th century, few women had access to the voting booth, and although some western states would grant women the right to vote before 1919, the promise of universal suffrage, giving all women access to the ballot box, was an ideal that would not come without a fight. In true form, women across the nation soon took to the streets to advocate for themselves, standing at the forefront were suffrage leaders, including Alice Paul. Paul was born in 1885 in Mount Laurel Township, New Jersey, a descendant of William Penn, the Quaker founder of Pennsylvania. She grew up in the Quaker tradition, 
which emphasized that all people, including women, were equal in God's eyes. It was an upbringing that by early adulthood drew her naturally to the emerging suffrage movement in America. First of all, I never heard of the idea of anybody being opposed to the idea. I just knew women didn't vote. I know my father believed in and supported the suffrage movement. And I remember my mother taking me to suffrage meeting, held in the home of the Quaker family, lived not far from us. So I just became, from that moment, very anxious to help in this movement. From that time on, I, while I'd gone to these suffrage meetings in this country, there was no opposition at the meetings. Everybody was in the court, all the Quakers were in court. This yeah. had been one of their principles since Quakerism was started, you know. They sure. called it the sexes. Only group I've ever heard that had it in their first principles first enunciated back in 1654, so there was never, wasn't a subject for discussion. Paul's activism on behalf of women's suffrage intensified significantly during a prolonged stay in Britain, where she became deeply involved with Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst's militant women's social and political union. Upon her return to the United States, she immediately poured herself and her newfound militancy into the National Movement for Universal Suffrage. By 1913, only nine Western states had given women the right to vote. Paul and hundreds of others were determined to secure that right for all women in America. Hoping to put pressure on incoming President Woodrow Wilson, she organized an inaugural parade in Washington, D.C. We held a meeting on the 2nd of January, which was the first meeting we ever held in Washington. I presided and introduced the whole idea of a procession and so on. Everybody there supported the idea and said they would turn in and help. We applied for a permit to have a procession, and the national headquarters that we kept informed up in New York about everything, and they were very anxious for us to have it. They thought it was a very good thing to have this procession. It would have a good effect on the suffrage movement all over the country, but they were always harping on the fact that they couldn't afford to pay a penny toward it. So then we're told by the chief of police, I told you, that we, they would give us a permit for 16th Street, which is the residence street where the, all the embassies are nearly in Washington. And that'd be the suitable background for our procession. And we had asked for Pennsylvania Avenue, having been told by almost everybody we asked that that was the political avenue where you always had your processions from the Capitol to the White House, and that no one would pay much attention if we went down 16th Street. So we said we just must have Pennsylvania Avenue, and they said, well, that's fine, we certainly won't let you have it. Totally unsuitable for women to be marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. So then Elsie Hill asked her mother, she since her father was in Congress, she thought her mother maybe could do something. Mrs. Hill took Elsie Hill with her, and they came out of the interview with the permit for the avenue. The whole procession was so colorful. We had one section, then followed by another section, another color. There'd never been a procession of women for any cause in the world. There really was a great interest in it. The procession made headlines across the country, but did little to garner the support of either President Wilson or his Democratic Party. In turn, Alice Paul initiated a policy to reach out to women around the country and hold the party accountable. The first election campaign occurred after we were created. We couldn't do it before. We had opposition to everything we did everything. We called this meeting, it was a meeting of our, and we laid before the women how the Democrats had caucused against us, 
Well, we just choose the argument, same argument we did with all women, that the women who had the vote now had the obligation, we thought, and anyway, they had the opportunity to enfranchise the rest of the women of the country, and we would appeal to them to do, use their votes in a way that would help, and we'd point out that the administration was formally against the enfranchisement of women, and if they voted for that administration, they were voting against the freedom of women. We got women to go into every state who believed this and who could get up and say it, and that way we, I guess, turned a great many votes. In every state, we always had a group of women who kept us informed of what the situation was. We were out to, do, to try to defeat all Democrats because they had caucus and were in power and could do it and wouldn't do it. But uh, we were not out, of course, to, to elect the Republicans. We didn't go out to do that. I've always thought it was one of the most powerful instruments that we, do, we could find and that we did use to uh, change the Democratic Party and change President Wilson. After years of getting very little traction on the issue, by 1917, Alice Paul intensified her public acts of defiance. She hoped that President Wilson would turn the political tide favorably toward a constitutional amendment for women's suffrage. A picket line amassed outside the White House with signs that read, democracy should begin at home, a not too subtle critique of America's home front, and the nation's looming involvement in World War I. Activists such as Mabel Vernon, a longtime ally and assistant to Paul, even met the president at his speeches. Paul and Vernon made their presence felt when the president addressed Congress. We had gotten tickets from congressmen beforehand. We were in the gallery immediately in front of the rostrum where the president speaks. I had the banner on my hip, and at the appointed moment, I spread the banner, and there was two women on each side of me. And then at the given signal, which I thought was the appropriate moment, we lifted it up and put it over the rail. And there we let it hang. Mr. President, what will you do for women's suffrage? And the banner was snatched out of our hands. As the United States officially entered World War I, such activism was greeted more harshly. Demonstrators, including Alice Paul and Mabel Vernon, were arrested on the spot. I think I was arrested three times because we wanted to go on with the picketing, and they wanted us to stop the picketing. While Paul and Vernon made the case for women's suffrage in the streets, Jeanette Rankin pushed the issue in the halls of Congress. Elected to the House of Representatives by Montana voters in 1916, Rankin became the first woman in history to serve in Congress. When I ran for Congress, I knew I could be elected. Once in Congress, Rankin wasted no time in working to pass the pending constitutional amendment. Though less visible, her professional politicking was an essential part of this process. I operated as a congressman. I was polite and sensitive. The fruits of their labor were now paying off. The suffrage amendment then moved to the Senate and the bill passed on May 21, 1919. The right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on the Congress sex with no limitation on it in any way. This is the 19th Amendment 
to the United States Constitution, political victory was finally theirs. Though this was a major milestone, few victories are total. Jeanette Rankin did not have the chance to relish her contribution. Shortly after her election, the Montana legislature redrew the state's districts, effectively ensuring her defeat two years later, using the tagline, do you really want a woman in Congress? Women had finally gained a voice and vote in American politics. But as we'll see in the episodes to come, the struggle to secure an equal place in that political process had just begun. This has been a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Narrated by Belva Davis. Researched and written by Todd Holmes. Produced and edited by Shanna Farrell and Christina Kim. Production assistance was provided by Julie Allen, Paul Burnett, David Dunham, Martin Meeker, and Linda Norton. And a special thank you to project advisor David Boyer. All interview clips were drawn from the Oral History Center collections. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.